When the news arrives on your device of choice, many people's decisions have shaped the stories that appear there. You're about to hear a panel of senior journalists, editors and a cartoonist taking you behind some of the year's big stories. They'll be explaining why journalists cover the stories they do the way they do. I'm Claire Fletcher at the Walkley Foundation, and you're listening to a special edition of Walkley Talks, conversations from Storyology, our 2018 Journalism Festival in Brisbane. This Storyology podcast is brought to you in partnership with Bond University. This morning we're talking about Saturday morning with the papers or iPad apps or M-sites or desktops, whatever floated your boat this morning. So the Walkley Foundation has put together a stellar panel for this session, so I'll introduce them now. So we have Lenore Taylor, was a top award-winning journalist in the Federal Press Gallery before swapping Canberra for the editor's chair at Guardian Australia. We have Sean Leahy, award-winning cartoonist whose work is featured in Time Magazine and the Herald Tribune, currently a cartoonist for the Career Mail. He has the distinction of being sued by the late Queensland Premier Sir Joby Occhi-Peterson in the lead up to the Fitzgerald inquiry. Then we have Paula Donovan, who's one of the finest crime reporters in the country, winning multiple awards for her work. She is currently senior investigative producer and crime reporter at Seven. And then we have Mark Schuss, he's investigations and projects editor at BuzzFeed News US, uh, and his team has been a finalist for Pulitzer Prize two years in a row, and he has won himself for an eight-part series on AIDS in Africa. So please join me in welcoming our panel. All right, so it's been a pretty massive news year, like if you look at the rescue of the soccer team from the Thai cave, um, if you look at the daily twists and turns of the Trump presidency, and locally we're having Super Saturday of by-elections because people didn't get their citizenship paperwork in order. So I just want to go down the panel and ask each of them to nominate what they see as the big story of the year and what have been the characteristics of the great and not so great coverage of them. Uh, So I chose to um, interpret this question as I wanted to, which one should always do, and interpreted it as the biggest story domestically. Um, because when you look at the big stories internationally, it all just gets quite overwhelming, really. Um, And I think the biggest story domestically, judged by its long-term impact, could well be the Banking Royal Commission. Because, uh, not only because it's a great story and the uh, revelations are astonishing and the personal stories are heartbreaking, But because of the um, way that that story uh, impacts or or contributes to the breakdown of trust in institutions and the anger uh, in the community at how, you know, big business, them, they out there are uh, not behaving fairly, not adhering to what were seen as the rules of the game in a sort of in a market capitalist society. So I think um, more than, almost than anything else, the behaviour of the banks has contributed to that breakdown in trust and I think that breakdown in trust has a huge long-term uh, impact, is going to have a huge long-term impact. 
And so for that reason, I think the Banking Royal Commission. And what do you think have been the good and bad coverage of it? Uh, well, I think the best way to cover something like that is to put it in context. So it's kind of an almost overwhelming daily feed of, of, of huge um, revelations and sort of mind-numbing detail and banking practices that are really hard to wrap your head around. So the best coverage has been the coverage that puts it in context rather than just does sort of quick updates. And what about from your perspective, Sean? Uh, well, for me, it's Trump. Um and Trump's uh, sort of trashing of the Western alliance and all his, you know, the US's traditional friends and his cozying up to these authoritarian dictators. It seems like he's sort of like the alpha orangutan or something, you know, that, that only respects other orangutans that, uh, that are really... Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah he, uh, he seems to admire people that are particularly ruthless and have no regard for... The, the common man. I, mean, I think he, he has this uh, conservative view of a life as a series of people are either winners or losers. And I think the loser category in his mind is very large. And, and what would you see as the characteristics of the good coverage of Trump and the not so good? <laughs> well, the good coverage, you know, is sober factual uh, analysis. I mean, that's, you know, that's fairly obvious, um, but the, uh, the bad coverage is very sycophantic and um, groveling kind of reflection of his own view. Um, and we've seen probably, well, quite a lot of that. So, yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, I just think the, the worst coverage of Trump is the coverage that's uh, distracted by his constant attempts at distraction and the good coverage is the coverage that sticks with the big, huge unfolding stories of the changes that he's making. I mean, he's a master of distraction, and the worst thing you can do is just run after it. I was just going to add that the worst coverage, I think, is Trump's own coverage of himself. He's just like a produces his own dialogue and own, you know, little news stories, and yeah, included. Yeah. So, Paula, what's been your big story of the year? Uh, I was actually, I've been thinking about this and. Um, I agree with with Lenore, uh, with the with the Banking Royal Commission. Uh, for me, it's been such a long time, uh, a lot of battle to get the banks into any sort of accountability, um, and for for such an important story of public interest in terms of mortgages, insurance, those big life commitments that we all make that impact us on a on a daily basis, um, and bringing them to heel. Finally, when we when we do canvas so many other um, institutions, like the, the the Royal Commission into into child abuse, where we look at all other very important facets and things like the banks that that always have been the untouchables, are now being being brought to brought to account. So, yeah. And Mark, are you kind of? on the Trump big story of the year, shouty tweets and everything? Oh, no, I think it's not a story at all. Um, first of all, just can I say thank you for you folks for coming out, and you should feel welcome, at least when I'm talking, to interrupt and say whatever you, you'd like. Um, and also thank you to the Walkley Foundation for putting this together, and to um, Simon, who is the head of BuzzFeed Australia, who lured me here, and I'm very happy that he did. Um, I think that everybody sort of hit on a theme. I think there's, there's two, to me, there's two intertwining stories that define our era. 
One is the breakdown of the post-World War II liberal order and the rise of authoritarianism and, and nationalism. But intertwined with that, and I think part of the cause of that, is the shift from the industrial economy to the digital economy. And let me just give you just one example of, of, of how those two stories intersect. In, in my country, the United States, the number one job category in 29 of our 50 states is a combined category called truck driver, tractor driver, and delivery person. Okay? Now, it will be a very short time before there will be driverless cars and driverless trucks. And not all, but a huge proportion, I'm willing to bet more than 50% of those jobs will not exist. And it doesn't really matter whether you take the side of traditional economists that there will be new jobs created by the digital economy or whether you think this time it's different and there won't be as many jobs created. The fear and the uncertainty and the anxiety and quite frankly the rage that many ordinary people's jobs are being wiped out and they are losing in this economy while a few people, often very young and white and living in Silicon Valley, are making a fortune. It's very tied up with why we have Donald Trump and all of the other strong men, they're mostly men, who have um, arisen. So I would say that those two stories and the way they intersect are the biggest stories of our time. Do you think there's been enough exploration of that? No. And what do you think should be explored? I mean, I think it gets to the limits of journalism. What, what we do, in, at least in, in my shop, is we try to look for harm, right? We try to look for a specific harm caused by a specific perpetrator, expose that and bring that to light. So whether that's how the West turned a blind eye to probable Russian assassinations on British and American soil, whether that's a corrupt Chicago justice system in which many people were put in prison for crimes they did not commit, and our story by Melissa Segura helped free nine of them. Um, those are very specific issues. They're, they're concrete, they're factual based. I think that there's, we've done a Many people in the United States, not just BuzzFeed News, have done a great job over the last few years covering Silicon Valley, especially after the election, right? But that sort of the way these forces interact is almost at the edge of journalism, right? It's at, at, at the far edge. It's like for, for intellectuals or philosophers. I mean, we need a new Hannah Arendt. And um, we... Uh, I think there's another way of um, reporting on and explaining what's going on, uh, as well as, you know, the traditional journalism of, of breaking news and holding power to account and exposing wrongdoing, and that is to try and explain from the point of view of the people in that situation that Mark just described. And I think that's a different type of storytelling, which we're kind of thinking about and trying to do in different ways. Um, one project that I thought was really interesting was um, 
a reporter from the UK, Gary Young, embedded himself in a town called Muncie, Indiana, for the duration of the last US presidential election. And if you read Graham, uh, Gary's reporting, the result of the election wasn't a surprise at all because he was not, it wasn't a box pop. He didn't just kind of parachute in and talk to a couple of people. He lived there and became part of a community and wrote about this Midtown American community from that point of view. And I think there's a, a place for that in a time of change like that. That kind of reporting is really important. We're at Guardian Australia at the moment doing a project where we've got uh, five Australians who are living below the poverty line writing a diary for us over the course of a year. And um, it's just, it's compelling reading because you're, you know, for someone in a privileged position like me and most of our staff, um, this is, it's, it's really interesting to just read about people's lives and I think it's really important that people understand those life experiences. So I think we have to think about both uh, investigations as hard as we possibly can, but also explanatory real life pieces to explain what's going on. Should we also be taking it a step further as well and looking at solutions instead of, yeah. Absolutely, and that, I mean, we've got another section at the moment called The Upside, which is exactly that, like, what can we do about it? And people really respond to that, because I think in a time when, you know, it feels very gloomy, um, people are really looking for something that they can do or something that might work. And, you know, there are, there are good news stories out there. There really are lots of local initiatives to do something about uh, lots of things, environmental problems, you know, um, uh, unemployment, um, building society, you know, building a community. There's, there's lots of those stories out there. For people who might be interested in that kind of journalism, a woman named Tina Rosenberg, who wrote a wonderful Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Haunted Lands about the fall of communism. She also wrote one of the great pieces on the AIDS epidemic, and she's a used to be, I think she still is, a board member at the New York Times. Um, she has founded a thing called Solutions Journalism. And she approaches that with the same kind of rigor that you would approach um, you know, a traditional story where you point out the wrongdoing. So she will really, um, you know, and, and she'll often point to a solution in order to shame those places that don't, aren't doing a good job. So she sort of hit on this with her famous AIDS piece where she went to Brazil, which at that time was offering antiretroviral drugs for HIV um, free to anybody in the country who was poor and could not afford them. And this was something that the world was saying, A, could not happen. But B, they were insisting and, and, and going up against international law by producing their own generic versions of the drug at a fraction of the price that the large Western pharmaceutical companies were charging, right? And so she pointed to that as a solution and by doing so, shamed the pharmaceutical companies, the large you know, world bodies that were saying this was impossible and the countries, both Western and, and developing nations, that were not doing it. So it can be a very powerful form of reporting, and her program, Solutions Journalism, is seeking to help people learn how to do this with the same rigor and power that you would approach any other kind of journalism, and you can just find them by Googling Solutions Journalism. 
Thank you. Um, we might move on to the topic of news judgment. So you're all senior reporters, finely tuned radars on what makes a compelling cracking story and what's a not so compelling story. Um, I might start with you, Paula. What's the key question that you ask before you start pursuing a story? If it's in the public interest. So how do you define, how do you define that? Well, with, uh, with, with crime reporting in particular, um, sometimes you have to, I guess it's whether it can border on salacious sometimes. Uh, and for me, it's how am I going to benefit? How am I going to inform the community? How am I going to, um, what Lenore was talking about before, about bringing uh, context of people's experiences to, to the fore, giving people a voice. Um, and whether we can expose, lift the lid, um, and whether it's going to be something that, I mean, you, you always like to see if you can affect change, I guess, um, but that's not, not always going to be, you can just keep trying, I guess. But for me, it's, is this something that is going to serve the public interest? Are they going to be better for knowing this? Uh, is it going to serve a purpose in, in exposing wrongdoing? Um, is it going to shine the light in dark corners, is the as the old adage goes. Uh, so that's, that's for me, uh, the first question I ask myself. Um, and I also ask myself about if it's, if it's something that comes to me rather than me pursuing the story, um, I uh, question the credibility of the source and do my best to sort of do my groundwork first and go and check before I go running down ridiculous alleys. Uh, yeah. Well, you, you kind of mentioned about crossing over into salacious. Like, where does the line... Where do you draw the line between what the public needs to know and what skirts into that territory? Well, that Barnaby Joyce uh, would probably be a, be a good example of, I guess, that whole question about is it exposing the Deputy Prime Minister having an affair, um, having a baby with his mistress? Uh, there was a lot of argument at the time about whether that should have been covered. Um, what do you think? Yes. Absolutely, I do. Um, I think that anything, for, for, for me, if, if there's a public official uh, who potentially could be open to any sort of compromise uh, because of, of, of what they're doing in, in secret or private, if it opens them up to potential blackmail, extortion. Uh, I mean, when I saw, the, saw that they were living, I'm not, and I'm not casting aspersions here, but living in a, in a, in a National Party donor's house rent-free, what, what, what does that mean? Where does that go? Does, is it something that... If someone gets that information and uses it to their advantage, that for me lies in the danger, and that's when we I think we need to we need to pursue and uh, not handle it so salaciously, but put it in keep it in that context of what is the what is the public interest here. He's obviously made statements as well about family values uh, and policies. Um, during the same-sex marriage debate, uh, that obviously will impact on a, on a lot of people and the way they live their lives and want to live their lives. So for me, um, I think it was really, really, really important to... And the, the relationship also muddied a lot of, you know, well, did she benefit? Did she benefit from uh, her position? Did, was she paid more? Was she given any sort of favourable treatment? How did that play out in the in the... In, in, the, in the everyday goings-on of the office on the, on the public purse. We had a police officer here recently charged with um, uh, official, I think it's official misconduct while in office, but basically she's facing up to seven years jail because she's been accused of 
giving a job to a senior officer's daughter, helping, you know, fabricating a promotion panel. And uh, so to me, we pursued that. So for me, again, it's that muddying of waters in their public position, what's going on behind the scene and what can be used sometimes if they're, if they're open to any sort of blackmail or compromise. Interesting. Anyway. Um, Sean, you probably have an interesting take on this. Like, how do you decide what news story is worth your cartoon treatment? Oh, uh, well, is this working? Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. That's <laughs> all right. Um, well, it, it, it generally has to spark me uh, emotionally uh, initially. I, my, my kind of personal philosophy is uh, on the side of the underdog. So if, if I see an injustice or abuse of power, that, that's always a magnet for me. Um, other times, I mean, there are issues that come up that, that I'm not even interested in. And I think, well, I really do need to address this. My, the first question I ask myself is, what do I think about this? And, um, and sometimes there are occasions and subjects that I don't actually know what I think about it. I don't have an opinion, you know. And at that point, I then have to really research it. And, uh, and I look at a lot of different media to get, you know, both sides, ten sides, whatever, to the argument. Um, but, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the answer. Thank you. Um, Lenore and Mark, do you want to weigh in on what question you ask yourself? Um, first question, are people going to read it? I mean, okay. there's really not much point deploying resources to something that no one's going to read. Uh, second question, is there some, uh, is, it, is it important? In, you know, I have a relatively small staff and I've got to make sure that I'm prioritising what we do on any given day. Uh, uh, am I doing it just for the clicks? If the answer to that is yes, then don't do it. Uh, but that said, clicks are good. So, you know, I want people to... It, it needs to be something that people are interested in but also has meaning and importance and a reason to do it. So for me, the hardest judgments are the fun stories because, you know, like the big, worthy... You know, that's easy. They're easy to pick. But how do you... Like, where do we draw the line? Like, you have to have some fun. You need light and shade on your site. You need to have some, you know, levity or, or lighter stories. And where, how to... So, I, for me personally, the judgment about which of those are, like, you know, valid, intelligent sort of takes on things, funny takes on things, and when it's really sort of verging towards cat videos, you know, like where you draw that line. What's wrong with cat videos? <laughs> well, nothing's wrong with cat videos. I just don't want to put them on my site. Um, and that line, that's the hardest line for me, personally. Yeah, because we've never had more kind of data to confirm or challenge our news call. How do you think that's changed the way we do things? Um, well, I think being informed is a good thing, but you can't just go with the data. So, you know... it. On any given story, on any given day, I know how many people are reading it. Uh, I know how long they're reading it for, which is a good indication of their engagement. And I also know if that's the last thing they've read before they decided to give us money. And if you put those three together judiciously, that's a good set of data to know how much people like a story and how engaged they are with a story. But if you took any one of those pieces of data, or even all three of them, and only made your news judgment on that um, on that basis, 
you, that wouldn't be a good thing. I think you've still got to go with your intuitive understanding of the news and what's important and sometimes take an absolute decision that we're going to lead with a story which is not going to do well on any of those metrics because it's an important story. That's got to be the overriding judgment but having that data, that's a good thing to know. How, how about you, Mark? What are your thoughts on data and having so much available and how that has potentially changed what we do? Um, so I think that relates to your other question, which is what do you ask? And as an investigative editor, I ask what's the harm? Um, because I think one good definition of journalism is to write about something that somebody wants kept secret and everything else is advertising. Um, and yes, we want our stories to be read. I'm really glad that we can see how far down a story people have gone, how long they've read it, you know, all that kind of stuff. We, we spend a lot of time, a lot of effort trying to make our stories compelling and crisp and powerful um, because we want them to be read. But we also do stories that, quite frankly, as you just said, we know aren't going to be read. My favorite one is the, um, uh, this woman. So the NSA is, of course, the America's you know, spy agency, and, and the most famous part of the NSA is the part that Edward Snowden, Ed, Edward Snowden talked about, which was... Um, it's called SIGINT for signals intelligence. This is, you know, the people who, you know, sweep up all your metadata. Well, the head of that was a woman, used to be a woman named Teresa Shea. And we found out that her husband had a SIGINT contracting business registered at their home and was a high executive of a multi-million dollar SIGINT contractor that appeared to do business with the NSA. I say appeared to do because, of course, NSA contracts are, are secret. And then we found out that she herself had an electronics business registered to her home that owned a Beechcraft Bonanza airplane and a condominium in Hilton Head. And I think the largest number of readers for those stories was something like, I don't know, 120,000 or you know, something like that. And, you know, but she is no longer the head of SIGIT. Now, the NSA, of course, says it has nothing to do with our stories. You be the judge. But I'm really glad we ran those stories, and I would run them again. And I think that, as you're saying, you just sometimes have to decide this is important. There is harm going on here. You know, there's people who have a clear conflict of interest. They're serving, supposed to be serving the public. Let's bring this to light and try to do it in a way that's fun. You know, we, we made a little graph of all the flights she had taken from Hilton Head to, to Fort Meade, which is the airport that serves the NSA on her Beechcraft Bonanza. I mean, we made it fun, and we made it compelling and interesting, but we, we didn't do it because we thought we would get clicks. Is, is anyone prepared to volunteer a time when their news judgment was off and what they learned from that? Take it away, Mark. <laughs> I was wrong very recently. Uh, I have a great reporter named Kendall Taggart, and Kendall uncovered one of the sort of great secrets of American life, the way that the American police forces discipline their own officers for misconduct is almost always done in secret. And the largest, the largest police force in the country, with more officers than most nations have you know, soldiers in their armies, is the NYPD, the New York Police Department, with some 40,000 
cops. And they fiercely guard their disciplinary process. And she managed to get a very large cache of internal disciplinary, essentially their disciplinary court uh, papers, shedding unprecedented light on how they discipline their officers. Well, after this story came out, which was fantastic, of course we wanted follow-ups, and so she came and she had in some of these documents found a woman who had um, uh, alleged that she was sexually harassed, which of course right now in the United States, probably the world, is a very uh, hot topic because of, of Me Too and because of the simple outrage that, that people have to undergo that. Um, and she had said, alleged that she had been retaliated against by being forced to go to alcoholism treatment rehab even though she was not an alcoholic. Now because of all the sexual harassment coverage, the kind of the bar for what makes a good sexual harassment story has, at least in my mind, somewhat risen. So, you know, I wanted to know, were there other women that she had that had made similar claims of retaliation? She didn't really have any. Well, what about this forcing people to go to basically psychiatric treatment as a, you know, rehab treatment as a form of retaliation? Could we, like, hone in on that and make a big story about how they force people to undergo drug treatment programs? No, she didn't really have that. Now, that, you know, there's no pattern here. It's one person. And one of the things I do on my team is I almost never make decisions alone. It's always, you know, a group of us. And one of my uh, deputies, a great, great reporter named Anthony Cormier, who's also edits for us, just made this impassioned plea for this story. Like, look, this woman, it's a credible story. It's an outrage. We need to publish this. And I said, okay. You know, that, that persuaded me. And man, was I wrong and was he right. That story took off. It has caused all kinds of high-level politicians in New York to demand uh, an investigation and to demand change. It's a great, great story. And I learned from it, you know, one, a single story is great. You don't need to have a pattern. And often, of course, single stories lead to other stories. And, of course, to listen to people who are smarter than me. It's a great lesson for us all. How about you, Paula? I mean, I'm sitting here trying to think of something, and I and I can't. <laughs> and I think, and I think it's sort of what um, just adding on to to what Mark said is that with news judgment, it's sometimes those or the stories that you battle with whether you should publish or not, whether it's worth the effort, the, res the limited resources that we often have in a very time sensitive environment now. But it's so important sometimes just to get things on the record. Just even if it's just a little bit, if it's, if it's a single victim in a in a much in a much bigger picture, um, but I can't. I can't think. It's okay. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Does anyone else have a? While well, we're doing a confessional here. Yeah, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. Um, I've uh, look. It's not so much a choice of a story. It's actually. Um, I did a cartoon a year ago, I think, or two years. I was trying to find it this morning, but I I can't find it, so I can't even tell you exactly what the cartoon is, but it's about the Lady Salento Hospital, which seems to have been a kind of a basket case of administrative craziness. And, um, and I made some remark in, in the caption, which um, when it was published, uh, I got a very 
strong reaction back from the medical staff and nurses and various other people, and it wasn't actually aimed at them. So what it, what it was, and I apologise to them on my Facebook page, you know, that wasn't what I meant, and I have the highest regard for what they do, but it taught me more clearly how you really have to finesse what you're saying and you really have to look at it from the point of view of could a reasonable person be uh, justifiably offended uh, mistakenly by not being clear in the message. So that was a, that was a classic case of, of, of that learning curve. Lenore, you put your hand up. Do you have one? I raised some trepidation. Um, I do uh, still think about the famous Julia Gillard speech. Um, I was in the press gallery at the time, and I guess I remember it clearly because I kind of copped it from both sides for my view on that, in that when she gave the speech, I did sort of respond viscerally like most women in the country, that you know, this was a woman standing up and calling it out and it was hard not to respond to that. And, and many of, almost all of my colleagues in the press gallery didn't respond to it that way because of the context that the speech was given in, in particular that it was given uh, in order to try to defend uh, Peter Slipper at, at the time and, you know, for various other reasons. They thought the context sort of outweighed the worth of the speech and I completely disagreed with that. I thought it was an amazing speech. However... When I wrote about it and in that vein, like what woman wouldn't respond to this speech, I did say you do have to think about the context. The context, you know, the context is there. You need to remember it. And so I copped it from the readers because from the point of view of anyone outside the building, the context really didn't matter at all and the speech was such a powerful piece of oratory in, in its own right that it should just stand as a stand isolated from the context that it was in. And I do, I do still wonder whether, it, whether when something hits a nerve like that, it is valid to completely disregard all context or not. It's just one of those judgment calls where I still don't know if I made the right judgment in what I wrote. It was before I was an editor, but with, with my commentary on it. And, um, and I just think it's a really interesting case of whether something can be so powerful that it just kind of transcends context. Yeah, absolutely. You weren't an island in that one, were you? Yeah. A lot of us copped it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, forgive the audible eye roll, but fake news. <laughs> um, is it a new thing? Has it always been there? Is it escalating? Or is it just simply powerful people using it as a weapon to discredit the fourth estate's when they uh, perform their watchdog role? I think we should ban the term fake news and I think we should certainly never use it because if it's fake, it's not news. Yes, well said. Anyone else want to weigh in on the uh, question? Um, it used to, uh, it's always been there, um, but it was in the old days it was called PR. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, yeah, or spin, you know. Um, the, the interesting thing is that uh, it was more cleverly disguised in the past, uh, I, I think. Fake news, as, as the term originated, was not news at all. It was something fabricated for a political purpose, like entirely fabricated. It wasn't just not very good journalism or journalism that had been overtaken by spin. It was an utterly made-up story, i.e. 
not news. And I think we need to dif differentiate between that and shitty journalism and, you know, journalists that have been hoodwinked by PR. Like, they're all different variations. But, but fake news has, was a term of, for made-up journalism which is now being manipulated by people in power to discredit the very best journalism that exists in the world. So I just think we need to not, like, just not validate that term because I think it's actually a term that's being used quite powerfully to discredit the very best of what we do. I agree in one sense, but you know that um, children overboard incident um, where uh, Howard running against Beasley managed to win the election on a lie, um, that was fake news. You, the, the way they, that, the way it was written, wasn't it? Yeah. That was a that was a journalists being suckered by a, a, a photograph that was released and said to be in one context when it was in a different context. So that was poor journalism, very poor journalism. But but it wasn't, and, and, and journalists not questioning and journalists being hoodwinked. But if we call it fake news, we're sort of... I think we need to interrogate what the problem is. And it wasn't a story that someone... that, that a journalist kind of made up entirely. There was a picture. They allowed themselves to be... You know, people allowed themselves to, to believe, to be convinced that it showed one thing when it didn't show that. It, it seemed to me to be a, an editorial decision to run with it because the editors uh, in charge of that story you know, smart enough to know you really want to look deeper. But they had a vested and they interest. Have. Yeah. They had a vested interest in the Howard government being re-elected. That's what that's the way it appeared to me. But the, the fake news label is something that um, unfortunately is, has dis, has discredited all news pretty much. You know, I mean Trump has used it so much that now now you don't trust any news. Uh, well, in the general public it it seems to be doing that. Whereas a couple of his uh, news outlets, uh, there's probably only one that is particularly favourable to him, that really is caught up in it as well. Um, you know, he, he doesn't seem to differentiate. He's, he's kind of making, a, that's where I agree with you with the fake news term. It's a blanket term which is sort of damning everybody. Since he called us a failing pile of garbage, maybe I have a <laughs> Something different perspective. To add. So, um, I totally agree that the term is overly broad. It started as one thing, it's being used as another. No question about that. But it's a term that's out there. I also think it's a term that's kind of run its course. You know, people are jaded about the term fake news. And I think there's an, there's, we, 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 we're not giving people enough credit for being able to sort of see through things. Look, people understand that there's a lot of misinformation. Now, people come at it with their own biases and whatever, but people are trying to sort out what's right and what's wrong, uh, or what's correct and what's not correct. Um, I think it's been going on basically forever. You know, at the founding of, of, of my republic, the United States, there was no objective or, 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 or you know, center sort of publication, all publications, all newspapers were very much tied to a partisan political view. And the idea of kind of journalism as we think about it, maybe now today, at least on this panel, virtually didn't exist. You know, you can go back to the time of Jefferson and Washington, you can read what was written and you just can't believe it. And similarly, you know, in, in the origins of totalitarianism, 
Hannah Arendt makes this very good point that what, 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 what authoritarian, totalitarian leaders do is discredit any concept of what is true or false so that anything is possible. The most wild-ass conspiracy theory suddenly seems plausible because there are no markers of what is true and what is false. And that, I think, is kind of where we have kind of listed forward in this particular moment. Um, and I think that as we, as we think about fake news, we also have to think about the change in our medium. It has never been cheaper to disseminate flat-out deliberate falsehoods to more people than it is today. And in fact, it's not just cheaper. As Craig Silverman, our, our reporter, who quite frankly really kind of broke ground on this whole fake news coverage has shown it's a money maker. You know, the, the, whether it's you know, a, a group in Macedonia or whatever, they realized that sensational headlines would bring them ad money. So not only was it cheaper to disseminate some kind of fake news, it would actually make you money on a scale with, with very little investment and on a scale that heretofore was impossible. So I think we really are living in a time where that potential for anything is possible is at a new level. And I don't think any of us, I certainly don't, know how exactly to deal with that other than to try to show our work how we know what we say we know. And maybe that's just too little, maybe that's just too weak. I'd be very interested if anybody has ideas on how to counter this distrust of what we do. But that's the one way that, that I've tried to deal with it. So what advice then would you give to readers on how to distinguish between what's fact and what's fiction in news reporting? Everything the four of us do is fact. And Five, sorry. <laughs> Five, sorry, my apologies. Um, no, I mean, I, I think it goes back to what I just said. You know, what is the ways that the people show how they know what they know. You know. We use document cloud, so for not always, because sometimes you have to protect sources by not putting the documents that you have obtained or reviewed online, but it's possible to put them online so people can see the source of, of where you're making your assertions. Sometimes you have to keep your sources anonymous, but at least tell as much as you can about those sources. And I think over time, individual reporters and brands develop a reputation, and that will be true even in this wild west that we, we now live in of, of you know, the internet. Brands are developing a, a reputation, and individuals are developing a reputation, and by consistently being accurate and saying forthrightly when you have erred, I think that you can build that trust over time. Yeah, I would agree. No, everything on your Facebook feed is not equal. No, who's written it? Um, because you know the, the the credibility of the source matters. By saying that, I don't mean that there's not highly credible, you know, very small bloggers or citizen journalists or whatever. But in in terms of you know knowing the quality of news, you need to know where it came from, how accountable they are to their readers, uh, and you know that's the starting point. Paula, you must have an excellent bullshit detector in your role. What would you be your advice to uh, readers? 
Well, I think it, it comes down to, to looking at the proof in the pudding, seeing what's there to substantiate what, the, what, what we've used to back up what we're saying, you know, um, which is getting increasingly hard, I'd like to add, with um, a lot of pressure being brought to bear on journalists to expose sources and use of documents. I know for me, um, sometimes it's... I, I ask uh, audience and readers to take a big, bit of a leap of faith in me because I, I may not be able to show a document or show a person who's a whistleblower who's speaking out. Um, but I think, for me, it's going back to the basic elements um, of journalism, and that's corroboration, you know, verifying, checking, double-checking. Um, and if there is a potential for a weakness in a story, then identifying that as well and, and, and including that as part of, your, a part of your story as well. Maybe just a follow-on from that, like... Investigative journalism obviously is incredibly important, but it can also be expensive for media companies and you know, media companies are under cost pressures and we're also seeing you know, a significant proportion of people that are flocking to news outlets whose entire business model is based just off aggregating other people's work. Um, do you, are you optimistic about the future of investigative journalism? As, as an... Uh, industry-wide, yes, but it is incredibly difficult because it's expensive because our defamation laws are stacked against us, against it. You know, you have to bear, you have to take into account the cost of vexatious defamation suits or defamation suits from people with deep pockets who who know that they don't have a case but know that they can really uh, bleed your resources by taking the case. All those, You have to take all those things into account, so it's quite difficult, but I think it's the most important kind of journalism that we do, so it does have a future. I think the other, other problem is too is still competing against the immediacy of, of some people's want for news, you know, um, and that the resources, how they're sort of distributed within the, within the newsroom as well. But again, that coming back down to that, to that news judgment and having the time. I mean, I, I work on a um, I work for the 6pm Bulletin Daily, try and do long term at the same time um, and it can, be, it can become quite a juggle for journalists. Yeah. But I'd like to think there is a future. All of those things are true and for the people who are doing beat reporting and who have the, the moxie and, and the, the work ethic to also add to that great enterprising, enterprise reporting, I, I, you know, hats off. Um, but there has been a massive renaissance of investigative journalism, at least in my country. Um, I've never seen the press do as great a job as it has done over the last year and a half. Um, in, in, in all quarters, um, ProPublica, where I used to work, so you know you can take that into account. Uh, you know, has has its budget has more than doubled because readers are supporting the kind of investigative work that they do. You know, on our team, which is now 22 uh, people globally, you know, it, the people who run BuzzFeed see that as a business investment, because those stories, people remember big investigations for years. The Washington Post is still remembered for the Watergate coverage. When you do something that really matters, and that, that readers engage with and remember, that helps, that can help, doesn't always, but can help the business. And we are clearly seeing 
everywhere across the country, from tiny little outlets to bloggers to huge you know, mainstream publications, invest in and actually succeed at doing great investigative reporting. So I am bullish on it, and I think it's going to continue to get better, and we have a lot of competition, and I welcome it. Um, the late, great New York Times reporter David Carr um, once said that he believed we were entering a golden age of journalism. Um, he said while there have been horrible friction costs, he pointed out that in his backpack he had more journalistic firepower than he had in the entire newsroom that he worked walked into 30 to 40 years ago. So I'm going to ask you to maybe predict what how you think storytelling might change over the next decade. Just a small question. That little old thing. Um, I think the way we tell stories uh, will change in that I think there will be the immediate news in uh, live blogs and quick updates and then longer form journalism and those sort of stories in the middle I think are going to fall away over time. Um, we're going to do more video-based uh, and audio-based uh, storytelling over time. And the big thing that obviously, and you know, you can't really start this with five minutes to go, but the big thing is how we pay for it. And that's what every media organisation in the world is trying to figure out. Uh, um, and, you know, that that's... But I think there are many innovative ideas to do that. So I'm not, I'm not pessimistic about it. It's just a huge upheaval. And the other thing that is changing, and I think vastly for the better, is our relationship with readers and bringing readers much... Talking to readers, listening to readers and bringing readers into the process. And I think uh, that's a, a change that's going to continue. A clue, really, but uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I think one of the one of the fascinating possibilities would be using virtual reality, where you actually experience the story. Now it's open to abuse, of course. In gaming, you can have all sorts of scenarios where you're actually you're actually a, a soldier in there, you know, doing. But but it would it would be a fairly um, uh, enlightening experiential thing to be in a particular situation through virtual reality. So I'd, I'd like to see something innovative in that area. I actually, I, I don't really, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I guess for me, um, I'm enjoying podcasting at the moment. I find that a really nice way to, uh, to, to, to tell a story. I think that, yes, we will become more inclusive. I do wonder... Um, what, and I hate this term too, citizen journalism, how much it's going to play a part in the future with us as well as, the you know, through social media, through the internet, how much more inclusive and how you have so many different different voices feeding into the, to, to the, to the news agenda. So that, I think for me, that's, I guess, what's on, that's probably future-wise what I sort of think about. Okay, I'll take the curmudgeon. It's not going to change. The forms, yes, there will be visual, virtual reality. There's already 360 video. There's podcasting. There's all kinds of forms. But the basics of storytelling are not going to change, and they have not changed. If you don't have a narrative, you have to have a compelling, explosive opening, which grabs the reader by the throat and tells her why it matters and what's going on. And if you have 
narrative, then the fundamentals will still apply, whether it's a podcast or a long-form written piece or a, or, or a video or a virtual reality. You will have to have character and conflict and pacing and all of those things which make and have always made for great storytelling. So I don't think storytelling will change. I think the forms, who knows, but not the storytelling itself. I'm assuming that everyone on this panel thinks we need journalism and the fact that you guys are all here on a Saturday morning, most of you agree. But I guess the question is, why do we need journalism? Uh, to find out all the things about our society that people would not know if we weren't here. To hold powerful people and the corporations to account, to tell the stories of what... and to, to observe and look and tell the stories of what's going on in society... I could keep going, but that's me. <laughs> and to, to give, yeah, and we're sorry, I'm sorry, Sean. And to give voices to to those who may not otherwise have them. Yeah. What they said. <laughs> no, I, I think um, we we really need it, and and I, I don't think it's doing this enough lately. Is uh, as an educational element instead of just responding to what readers like. You know, we're looking at the the mass media. There's a lot of this just regurgitating and following algorithms and instead of um, instead of and, and and opinionated reporting instead of actual reporting there's um, you, you don't see a role for voicey reporting kind of different to opinion reporting okay that's that's okay but I, it just seems there's a it's very there, there's a, a lack of social responsibility um, that I see um, where the the media, and that's a very broad term, but elements of the media could be more uh, helpful in, in terms of writing about things which are more educational than opinionated. That's just a, a view. So, to, sorry, Sean, do you mean something like more to more inform the public rather than telling them what they think yeah. that they... Yeah, like, yeah. like in even most subjects, to have actually... I'd, I'd really love to see... Uh, journalism that had uh, opposite views, you know, whether they be left and right columnists or whatever they are, but have them right side by side, you know, given, given a space so that people could actually read the counter-arguments instead of trying to figure out where is this story coming from? Who's writing this? What's the agenda? What's management trying to do? You know, which, what is really true? I mean, I, I'm, I put myself in the, in the, in the uh, shoes of an ordinary reader, I'm trying to figure out what's true and real myself before I work, you know, and it's, it's tough for everybody, I think. We have this thing called outside your bubble. And so when we run, run a story, we'll, you know, people will comment and we curate those comments to sort of give you a sense of the spectrum of, of, of reactions and views that people have to those stories, which is one way of doing that. I mean, look, why does journalism matter is the same as asking the question, why does knowledge matter? There's no difference. You know, journalism is trying to do what it, people have been trying to do since at least the time of Herodotus, which is tell what actually happened. And that's why it matters. Um, I think we're going for time. Okay, so time's against us, so maybe ask one final question of every panellist. Um, 
Are you optimistic or pessimistic or a little bit of both about the future of our craft? Uh, I have to be optimistic because the alternative doesn't bear thinking about. Um, hmm, I'd like to be optimistic. Because <laughs> uh, the evidence seems to me to be pointing the other direction. Um, it seems to be more fragmented. It seems to be... Um, yeah, I, I, I have... Uh, the jury's really out for me. <laughs> I like to be optimistic, but I worry about uh, the erosion of old school journalism, I guess, when I see some younger reporters coming through, that we don't have the training and the, um, the baby steps, you know, before you're moving into senior roles, um, the uh, passing on the mentoring, and we're, and we're getting a bit better at, better at that. You know, journalism schools aren't purely journalism schools anymore, because Universities have to survive, so they merge with other other disciplines like communication, PR, advertising, that sort of thing. So that that's what that's what worries me. But I do try and hold on, hopefully, that uh, knowledge and wisdom <laughs> does get through uh, the, the the daily you know daily craziness of, uh, of of being a journalist for me. Well, you already know that I'm the optimist, so I'm I'm not I'm not stepping back from that. I'm very optimistic because I see great reporting happening all the time and more of it now than at any point in my in my now rather long life. Um, I do have one caveat. Journalism does not exist in a bubble. It exists in free democratic societies. You don't have great journalism in despotic or totalitarian regimes. And what you see in Hungary, what you see in Russia, what you see in China, what you see the nascent beginnings of in the Western democracies is a real challenge. And it's a challenge not whether you're right or left, but it's a challenge to whether we're going to continue to have the freedom and the culture that supports and cherishes and is the foundation to the journalism that we all love and and need. Thank you very much. Um, can you please join me in thanking our panel, Lenore, Sean, Paula, and Mark. Thank you. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. If you dig it, sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe for all our announcements, stories, and updates. If you liked this episode, follow and rate us on your favourite podcast app. Mark Schuf's visit to Storyology was made possible thanks to BuzzFeed News. This podcast was produced by Miles Holbrook Walk for the Walkley Foundation at the 2SCR Studios in Sydney, Australia, and supported by Bond University. Catch you next time.